We'll be spending some time this morning in Luke chapter 2. We'll start in Matthew, but we'll spend most of our time in Luke chapter 2. And I just wanted to ask you, have you ever, and I bet you have, been reading a book and you just love it or watching a movie and you just love it, but at the end there's a little blemish or something where you're like, I wish they hadn't Loved it, wish they hadn't killed off the main character. Loved it, wish the jury hadn't come back with a guilty verdict. Loved it, wish the hero uh, wouldn't have been taken by the zombies at the end. If you like Will Smith movies, you probably know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> There's just that little hiccup that you would change about the story to perhaps improve it. And maybe that's why when so many runs have been made at telling the Christmas story or some other version of the Christmas story, i.e. Hallmark Channel, you know, all the movies that are out and everything, uh, among the details that get included, usually a lot of the details from the first chapter of the New Testament of Matthew's gospel actually get left out because they seem to to some of us maybe blemish the story a little bit, but they are included, they are there, and I think they are important details. And while we're not going to spend a lot of time in Matthew's gospel the next two weeks, I thought we should at least consider those details. And so, as Matthew gives his genealogy, that's how he starts out, a genealogy, leading up to Jesus. Um, he includes a couple of sex workers in the genealogy. He includes an unwed mom in the genealogy. And each of these individuals is indispensable to the story of Jesus for Matthew. Needs to be included in the story that he tells. There's a woman named Tamar. Um, who at least for one night worked in the industry. And through her and through her father-in-law, Judah, the lineage of Jesus would run. And Matthew chooses to include her name in his story. Now, she had her reasons for what she did. She was vulnerable. She was powerless. She had been ostracized after her husband's death by his family. And so her story is one of courage and one of desperation. Matthew included her. There's Rahab. And she is given, depending on your English translation, either the title harlot or prostitute. Take your choice. Uh, neither is particularly respectable. Neither is a title you would want someone using to refer to perhaps your daughter. Um, but Matthew includes her, and some well-meaning interpreters have come along and tried to reinterpret and, and maybe you know, see if we can find an alternative definition of the Hebrew or Greek there. But Jewish scholar Amy Cooper Robertson says of Rahab, to be sure, Rahab represents such marginality. Think underdog. She represents such marginality in several ways. She is a woman and a single, childless woman at that. She is not part of Israel. 
but one of the people of a city that is about to be conquered. And finally, of course, she is a prostitute. Tamar Kadari, not the Tamar we talked about a moment ago, but a Jewish scholar, has this to say after studying rabbinical literature, uh, Midrash, if you're interested. She says, the rabbis describe how Rahab was 10 years old at the time of the exodus from Egypt. She engaged in prostitution during 40 years of the Israelites' wanderings in the wilderness until the age of 50. Again, that's not in the Bible, but that's what some rabbis interpret about her. Rahab, though, was more than a label. She was more than a sex worker. She was a courageous woman and an underdog who God chose to involve in the lineage of Jesus. By the way, I read this this week. I'd never seen this before, but the rabbis contend the four most beautiful women of the ancient world, Sarah, Abigail, Rahab, and Esther. They had obviously never seen Isla Dabs before, but there you go. Matthew included Rahab. He included Tamar. And then there's Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. She was an outsider. Worse than that, she was part of that group that were generational enemies of the people of God. And she became part of Jesus' ancestry. Yeah, if you, if you were to do research, Ancestry.com, take a little DNA from Jesus. He had some Moabite DNA. God included her. Matthew included her. And then, of course, Mary. Mary is innocent and pure, but Matthew makes it very clear to his readers that the mother of the Son of God was an unwed mother. And in that culture, in that time, that was not exactly a respectable thing to be. And of course, of course, Matthew included her. And as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't really Matthew at all who included these ladies in this genealogy. It was God who included them in the story of the birth of his son Jesus. Uh, Each of these women found redemption. Each of them really found themselves when God included them in his story the center of the redemption story, the coming of Christ. Uh, The two gospels that tell the story of Jesus' arrival, Matthew and Luke, uh, they both feature underdogs, um, people who they don't seem terribly important. They weren't wealthy. They were not powerful people. Um, And there is this spectrum of underdogs. Matthew chooses to include uh, less let's say, respectable underdogs. And by the way, I'm not just picking on the women. I could have talked about the men in that genealogy. It just would have taken a whole lot more time. There was a whole lot more baggage there. But Luke has more respectable and religious underdogs in his story. But here's the thing. The Christmas story, no, the real Christmas story, not the edited and abridged version of it, It is a story of inclusion, of God writing people in who the world writes off. Did he have to include sex workers, 
in the genealogy of his only begotten? Did God have to have a Moabitess in the line of Jesus? Did he have to include these foreigners from Arabia in the story, the, the wise men? Did he have to include people, shepherds, from the bottom rung of the social ladder? And so if we edit the list of the, the cast of the Christmas story to take out the sketchy people, the list gets really short, really fast. And Paul once told us the reason why it has to do with the heart of God. Paul wrote in Romans 2.11, God shows no partiality. Don't you love that about God? We show partiality, right? I mean, we're the people who, who are partial to the influential, to the Instagrammable, to the wealthy, to the respectable. God shows us throughout the scriptures, he's partial to all of us. For God so loves the world. And whatever your past, be careful not to write yourself out of God's story as someone, God can't use me. God uses people like you all the time in his plan of redemption. And for those of us who would be more comfortable around the characters in Luke's Christmas story, um, the more religious, the more respectable, we need to be careful to look out for those who Matthew includes in his the poor, the marginalized, the not so respectable because God uses all kinds of people and loves all kinds of people. Uh, and so now bridging this story from Matthew over to Luke. By the way, they tell the same story. Matthew just includes additional details and additional individuals. But as you move over to Luke's gospel, you find out once again, God does some of his best work certainly his most creative work, through the underdogs of the world. Um, think about that history. Gideon, the runt of the litter, the outcast, the smallest tribe, the least influential. God used him to liberate the people of Israel. I think about Mephibosheth, little known character, part of the enemy family, to David's family, the enemies of David, this handicapped child David invites to live in the palace and to sit at the king's table for the rest of his life. I think about Joseph, I think about Esther, I think about a fisherman named Peter and other fishermen. God shows off, doesn't he? By selecting underdogs through whom he works his plan and displays his glory. Jesus made this very point when he told Paul, who Paul didn't feel like he was up to snuff, felt like he had some weaknesses. God, why don't you just fix my weaknesses? And Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now to Luke's underdogs, the respectable 
underdogs, but underdogs nevertheless. We traveled to Bethlehem. It is a tiny village, more or less 300 people in that day and time. Not a significant uh, city to be reckoned with. And the, the night is dark and we are outside of town in the hills, the Judean hills. And we encounter this group of shepherds who are keeping watch over their flocks. And suddenly that, that bright light, blinding light, I, I, at 2 o'clock in the morning, if, if modern people were to see a light like this, they might think a nuclear bomb had gone off or something. I mean, it was just like midday. There's the sun right there. The sight, of course, <clears throat> rattled them. Luke chapter 2. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for who? All the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And when we visit, visualize these shepherds, be sure to include teenage girls and boys. Those were usually the ones tending the flocks back in those days in that part of the world. And so they see this blinding light that encompasses them, and they are what? They are terrified. Uh, the angel of the Lord shows up and has news. By the way, angels generally did, these messengers. He had news for them. And this angel wasn't sent, wasn't dispatched from heaven to the emperor in Rome or to uh, a Fortune 500 CEO of, a, of an ancient company in Israel. He was dispatched to the minimum wage workers, to the shepherds. If it were today, maybe the night shift at the Taco Bell. The God of the universe wanted them to get the news first. Isn't that awesome? You're going to hear it first. And it's news, not just for your group, verse 10, but for all the people. But I'm starting with you. And they're in the middle of nowhere, blinding light, the glory of God, and they were afraid. And that announcement, right, that they heard, it is the fulcrum of world history. What they were hearing about is the separation between A.D. and B.C., and I got to level with you, this is where words fail. This is where preaching fails. I would love to capture this with my words, but I can't. There are too many emotions in that scene that are happening all at the same time. What we get in verse 9 is that they were greatly afraid. I think they were greatly a lot of things. Fear was certainly part of it. When this one angel, one angel appears and delivers the message, but they hadn't seen anything yet. Had they? Because after they received the message from that one angel, we are told in verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. We've been praising God this morning. 
singing hymns of glory to God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And Luke, he tries, he does his best, but words fail. I mean, what a sight. (laughs) Angels had, yeah, I get it. Angels had visited people before. An angel had visited Hagar. Angels had visited Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Angels had visited Lot and his family. But as far as I can tell, the most, the highest number of angels to ever appear in one spot in our world was three. Okay? And here, in the middle of nowhere, there's a multitude. There's an army a host of angelic beings. And for the first time in history, they are singing. It is a choral presentation in the night sky performed by this army of angels. No one had ever heard an angel sing before. And I just, it's just sensory overload. We don't know what that was like. And so they were terrified. It's kind of the best we can do. But Luke chapter 2 verse 14, they were singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, Christmas, there's no event that's occurred that has inspired so many songs, so many compositions as Christmas Uh, Last I checked, there were 9,274, thanks Google, Christmas songs, 9,274 Christmas songs that have been written. And whether it's Handel's Messiah or Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas is You, no song has ever been heard by mortal ears that holds a candle, I'm positive, to the one those shepherds heard on that night. Performed by this angelic chorus. And regardless of what's on your playlist, regardless of what kind of headphones you have or sound system you have in your house, we haven't heard anything as beautiful and powerful as what they heard. Luke chapter 2 verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went. They went with haste. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. I mean, Christ, Lord, wow. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the angels returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. So just a couple of things, and we'll finish out this morning. One thing I notice in this story is this story is for all people. The salvation story is for humanity. I bring you great news of great joy or good news of great joy. It will be for all the people, verse 10. That's a message from heaven to earth. And in a world where people are so often and easily divided into different ethnicities, into haves and have-nots, into insiders and outsiders, God ignores all of our boundaries. 
And he sends us all the Savior we all need so desperately. We also find out that God loves us. Not just in a, I sent you a direct message, a DM, or I, I sent you a text message. And not just through the Bible, through Scripture. He came in person. <laughs> he came in person. Literally came as an infant in a manger. That's how much he loves us. And then God shared his story and still does through regular people, through regular folks. The shepherds, what did they, were they, they were glorifying, they were praising God. They were telling the story that they had heard. They couldn't keep the good news to themselves. They went back to their regular lives. Verse 20, they were telling the story. They were sharing about Jesus. And I hope that describes us as believers, that we are so excited that this story, the glory of it hasn't worn off for us, that we still bear witness, that we still tell what we have heard from God. I hope we follow their lead. By the way, if you need some pointers on that, we got a conference in February, so be sure to be part of that. And in a story, right, where the lowly are elevated, where the spotlight shines on the underdogs, God throws off expectations and God is born into our world in weakness. He comes in as a baby, born to a poor Galilean couple. The angels write, pretty eye-catching. They are awesome. But they are not the Christmas story. They are announcers of the Christmas story. They're the narrators of the Christmas story. But they're pointing to him. Seven pounds, three ounces, or whereabouts. To the God-man lying in the manger. God in human form. And this week as I was working on this, I thought about the words of the Apostle John. He once said, Theos agape estin, God is love. And I wonder if John thought about this moment, how much God loves us to be born into this world. Jesus, Prince of Heaven, he would grow up in the land of Zebulun as a carpenter's apprentice and as we know, Jesus would grow up and be betrayed and be rejected by the very people he came to save. That's the underdog story that overshadows all others. His death brought life to all who trust on his mighty name. And three days after course, there was the glorious resurrection, revealing that death could not hold him, that death is not the end of the line for God's people. So, what about you? What about you? Have you come to believe that God wants to include you? in his story.